Welcome to The Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand. Hello, and welcome to The Laws of Style. Downloading to you from the offices of HBA. Hi, Bob Bryant Park in the Fashion District of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled, well-dressed man. I'm joined by Nick Wooster, who is uh, also a well-dressed man, perhaps uh, better dressed than I, uh, who recently uh, was announced as the GQ International Man of the Year. So, Nick, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> so, International Man of the Year. I mean, wow, congratulations. Uh, what, what is it? I mean, well, let me, let me pause. You are an international man. I mean, I often uh, hit you and you're in some time zone that I thought you were 12 hours away from. Um, but, but what is the award for and um, how was it bestowed upon you? I mean, I think it was like when I had my 10-year high school reunion, I won the award for having traveled the furthest. I think it's the same idea. It's like, oh, <laughs> I live the <laughs> furthest away, so you get the award. Um, because this was GQ India. Okay. So... Um, I, it's a massive market. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It's crazy. Um, and I'd never been to India, so in that way, it was an awesome way to see a country and be a guest in a nice place. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, the thing I would th – that, that when you made that lovely introduction that I would say about – about being best dressed, I would just say I'm the most stressed. And what I mean by that is I probably just have more clothes than anyone else, so something's bound to be good. Right. Well, um, we're going to get into what your closet looks like, and we're going get to again, get into um, you know your various wardrobe changes over your career. But I want to lay a little groundwork for some of our listeners who may not know your background. Um, you know, Kansas born and bred. I, I have this, this vision of you in the 70s sort of staring out over the over the flat plains and you know wearing dungarees and 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 thinking of three-piece suits has kansas tell us a little bit about that upbringing in kansas because you know we all have images of that and very few people have actually been right and there's no probably no reason to go and the other thing is it doesn't exist i mean the 70s, I, I, I mean, I believe, I was born at exactly the right time. Like, to have grown up in the 60s and 70s was, it was kind of phenomenal. I mean, the kind of music that they played on the radio is, you know, considered some of the best music in the world. Like, Stevie Wonder's Songs in the Key of Life is like an amazing album. This was the kind of stuff we heard on the radio. Yeah. So, this, you know, so it was a time and place where we didn't lock the house we didn't lock our cars. I mean, in 1976, when I was 16 and drove a VW Bug, I mean, we used to put the keys in the visor and then just go into the shopping mall. Like, there was no such thing as locking the car. Right. Um, you know, I think gas was like 50 cents a gallon. I mean, it was a completely different time and place. And so I was, you know, I didn't, and, and also, this is something too about the culture. There were only three channels. So the entire world saw the same thing all the time. You know, it was like you, know, 30 per, you would have a one out of three chance of seeing the same thing at any given moment. Right. Um, so the references were much more universal and consequently how we looked was much more the same. Like mm -hmm. if you look at Brady Bunch reruns, that's what I looked like as a kid. Like that's what my brothers looked like. That's what my parents looked like. Peter or Greg? <laughs> 
Well, I was the oldest, so. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I digress. Um, you know, it, it, it is interesting, you know, men and women of our vintage, you know, having straddled this time when life was inherently slower because, you know, the, the personal computer, let alone the internet, were still things that were to come. Um, but we'll put a slight pin in that because um, it'll be interesting fodder for some of our conversations about retail. Just continuing a little bit on the chronology, um, you started in advertising and you started at one of the great advertising houses, Saatchi and Saatchi. Um, from that, you pivoted into fashion. What was, what was the reason for that? They're obviously related or I'd say kind of adjacent skill sets in a way. But was there, was there some method behind the madness there? Well, but you left out one critical thing. <laughs> I started working, you know, uh, I should do the math, eight years before that because I started working in a clothing store when I was in high school. Okay. And so, and that was purely prompted by the fact that when I announced, because we were firmly in the middle. My parents never talked about being rich or poor. It was just like we, we were provided for, we did things. Mm -hmm. But, it, you know, when I, and I guess maybe when I sort of understood that like, oh, you mean I can't get what I want? was when I announced to my mom, when I was like a freshman in high school, oh, these kids have a cashmere sweater, I want one. And she's like, I'm happy to buy you a sweater, but it's not gonna be cashmere. If you would like one, you should go work for the place that has them. And that's what I did. And so when I was a junior in high school, I got to work for this, the nicest store in town. And you know, on evening, afternoons and evenings after school, so from like three to, six three to seven and then on the weekends on saturday and i would wear a suit or i would wear a blazer and a tie and and nice pants and i would clean the bathroom floors i would do deliveries occasionally i would get to help people but after a, a couple of years of this by the time i was a senior in high school charlie the owner the son of the owner um like in those days, like the Gantt salesman would come through and he would like, they would have swatches and Charlie would be like, Nikki, what are the three best plaids here? And I would, and you would take change out of your pocket and put quarters down. And I would say this, this, and this, and Charlie would go, hmm. And then the, you know, the sort of the Farrell Reed tie guy would come through and he'd have all these ties and Charlie would be like, pick the 10 best ties here. And so I would pull out my change and put them down. And, and he said, you have flair, you have, so I, and then he took me on buying trips. So to Dallas, Kansas City, and then eventually New York. And this was, so I also worked through college through, I mean, I worked also at a clothing store in college in my, in, in Lawrence, Kansas, Mr. Guy, but I, but I would come home on long break, spring break, Christmas break, summer break, and work throughout the summer or throughout the holiday. And so I always knew that being a buyer was, an, was a job, but I didn't think it was legit. So I studied journalism and I wanted to work in an office because I thought that was more respectable than working in a store. So that's how I started was I because I, I started working in advertising um, because I studied journalism and I was like, oh, I'll be like Darren Stevens. And you know, like that's from Bewitched. <laughs> you probably have no idea what this is. I can't, I can't wiggle my nose either. <laughs> I wanted to, yeah. Exactly. Um, <laughs> and you know, what I learned quickly was, and I was also assigned, I worked on Procter & Gamble, which in the scheme of advertising, like people that get to do that, and everybody in my sort of like pledge class of the people that I started with, you know, went to Ivy League schools and all this kind of thing, and, and you know, I, I didn't. And 
but I was not interested in something like Procter & Gamble. I mean, I might as well have been an accountant or worked in finance. That's mm -hmm. It was way too disciplined, way too, way too non-creative for me. And so after understanding, after a couple of years that, okay, this isn't really the track for me, somebody said, what would you like to do? And I was like, oh, maybe I want to be a buyer because I had sort of done that job as a kid in high school. Yeah. So that's how I made the pivot. Um, it was... And also, the only reason I work in fashion is purely for selfish reasons, because I'm just in it for the clothes or the right, discount. Right, right. Well, so you worked for a couple of the greats early on, Barney's, Bergdorf Goodman. Um, did you, were you drawn to those retailers because of the luxury price point, or was it something about, you know, you think your perspective that, that, that led you there? I 100% won the lottery as far as I'm concerned, twice. Um, so the other job, which I really was the first job. So what happened was I was actually, after Saatchi and Saatchi, I worked for one year selling advertising space at New York Magazine. <laughs> I'm super grateful to them for diagnosing my drug problem long before I did. And um, after they gave me an opportunity to go to AA and blah, 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 which was also very gracious of them. And you know they kept me on. 10 months way longer than they should have um they let me go which was a very loving thing to do in the end that's when i sort of understood that like okay i want to do i need to do something else and a woman that i had met was a buyer at Saks Fifth avenue and so she i was introduced to her and she's like okay you want to be a buyer at Saks? here's how it works you either get in the training program which this was in the sort of february march of 1986 the program starts in September, so it's like, well, I need to work before September, and that's if I could even get in that program. Or you can come and work in the store as an assistant department manager. And sometimes we take people from that pool and put them in the buying office. Mm -hmm. I'm like, okay, cool, I'll take that. So for a year, I was uh, you know, shoveling cashmere sweaters on the main floor, you know, basically um, overseeing salespeople and, and also having to sell myself. And a woman who was a cosmetics manager went to Barney's and in 1986 Barney's on uh, was one store on in Chelsea they had just opened basically an entire block of women's wear and so she went as a cosmetics buyer and she came in the store and said oh listen Peter Rizzo who was the men's GMM is looking for an assistant buyer in one of his areas and so she made the introduction I interviewed with Peter with Gene Pressman and with Fred Pressman and shockingly got that job I, I mean I just wanted to work at Barney's because it was the coolest store in the world I didn't have any concept of luxury Barney's price in point. the mid 80s must have been an absolute heaven for you there was I think it was Bloomingdale's it says like no other store in the world this truly was like no other store in the world I mean yeah. and th unfortunately there isn't anything since you know, it was it was really one of the most amazing time and places to be in retail. And again, how how the hell did a kid from Salina, Kansas, get that opportunity? I mean, I I, I I'm just well, super you lucky. are you're connecting the dots a little bit. You know, my pre pro didn't include some <laughs> of those early jobs, so this is this is why we ask, well, and no, this is I, why we tell. But but so to to pivot once again, although slightly less dramatically. On to the brand side, 
you know, from those experiences. You then went to Calvin. Uh, you were at Polo. Um, and, you know, you were really on the design and merchandising side there. Right. How did that come about? Was it just a skill that, um, that you recognized through, through selling different brands that you had? So as I went from Barney's then to Bergdorf's, I became a, a designer collections buyer at Bergdorf's, which I would have never had that job at Barney's, and that's really the only reason. And I always say that if I had to do it over again, I should have never left Barney's because Barney's was truly the most amazing place, but I was a, a suit buyer, and I didn't want to be a suit buyer. I wanted to be the, a designer buyer. And so when I would sit in fashion shows, because in those days buyers actually went to fashion shows, as I would sit there, I used to think, I could do that. I want to do that. I want to be the person right. actually making something or being responsible for making something. Okay, again, that's youth and hubris and, you know, and, and ambition and uh, unbridled ambition. I mean, I was super ambitious. That's the other thing is I – it didn't occur to me that like you couldn't do these things if you weren't properly trained. And I learned later that, you know, there's a lot of resentment. There was a lot of resentment at Ralph Lauren by people who were properly trained designers, having somebody like me come in and work in design. I understand that I still maintain to this day that just because you can draw or sketch or know how to cut a pattern doesn't mean you have good ideas or good taste. Mm -hmm. I believe those are two different things, but to be able to speak the language of design, which is sketching or cutting a pattern, I, res I revere those skills and I'm so sorry and, you know, but in awe of people that do have them. But my job today and what I believed at the time and what I, and what really what Ralph believed, because that's how they set it up, it's a, it, you need to work with people. So people who have good ideas can also work with the people that speak the language. It's like, and then together you can come up with and I, that's really kind of a, a version of what I do today. Yeah, so 80s, 90s, New York City, New York Fashion Week. You know, those in a way were the salad days for U.S. fashion. You had sort of the big four that were really spreading their wings a bit. And by that, I mean Calvin, Ralph, of course, Tommy, and Donna. Uh, but other U.S. brands that were, that were doing well and really rivaling the European houses. What what was that like? What was New York Fashion Week like back when it was here on the park? I mean, what talk about those days and maybe juxtapose them with with what New York Fashion Week is for you today. Ooh, this is probably make me super unpopular. Um, <laughs> okay, so you know the '90s. I mean, you know, people like Fern Malice. I mean, they really she was really responsible for, and and along with you said like the big four and and many. John Bartlett, you know, there were, there were many brands and designers that were, I would say, world-class that could, that could be on the same stage at the same time. And because of people like Fern that, you know, and the CFDA that really fostered and, and allowed this to sort of happen, I mean, it was, it was an incredible time. I mean, working at Calvin, Carolyn Bissett worked in, in public relations. Narciso Rodriguez was designing, you know, um, uh, Jackie, whose last name I'm forgetting, um, you know, who went on to work with Ka with Donna for many years. I mean, some of the most talented people were at Calvin Klein at that time. It was like being at Barney's with Simon Doonan or, you know, at Bergdorf's with Don Mello or Angela Patterson. Like, there were just legendary people. Yeah. And so, and I think that's kind of the point is that 
it, it was different than it is today. I don't know who those same legendary people are. I, I'm sure they exist, and this is nothing against anybody who, but it's just different. It's yeah. just different. And, and I think that the another m key difference that I notice in myself versus maybe younger people because of, unfortunately, because of maybe things like this, I don't see the aspiration that used to exist where you had to learn about and sort of be patient for and wait for things to happen. I think today everybody just expects and, and in a certain way everything just does happen on a much quicker timetable. So, you know, you, I, I just don't, you know, I think people just are, they become or they are something and so, okay, cool. So they get to do things that it used to be you maybe had to wait your turn or study or learn about or things would just happen on a much slower timetable. Yeah, I think as well with, you know, the, the amassing of talent, I mean, there weren't as many brands. So now we are kind of awash in brands. I mean, there are brands launched every quarter. Um, and some of them good, some of them not good. And brands dissipate and go away far quicker. The cycle is far quicker than, than it was in those days. So I think people were able to, to really, you know, not only earn their place, but hone their craft. Right. Um, yeah. Well, so so John Bartlett, who was a guest uh, a few weeks back, um, you went on to run his company, which um, again, sort of another skill set that not obvious from those experiences. <laughs> Maybe go into that because John is a lovely guy, as you know, he's, and um, he's you the know, best. yeah. But you know, I mean, and maybe this is like going full circle. I mean, no, I wasn't ever, you know, groomed to be to be the president of a company, and, and in a certain way, that's not really what I did. But, but I was there to help, and so it was just like he needed someone to help give him some structure, discipline, and what you know, what that under what what he understood that to be was retail because I was a retailer before that he really respected that skill set of like being a buyer he thought that was a big deal I knew what the deal was <laughs> meaning that in those days you know a buyer was the lowest man on the totem pole there were so many other people above being a buyer yet I was still the one who made all the buying decisions I mean I used to tell my bosses what brands were buying or dropping and saying you know what what pieces we were buying and occasionally they would try to say what about and I'd be like now <laughs> you know, but again, <laughs> buyers today don't get to do that at all. They're really just kind of executing what three or four layers above them are are telling them is going to happen. So th those are some of the fundamental shifts in in the business today. But you know, basically, it was that kind of again that the thing of youth and hubris and and sort of not knowing any better. You know, it's like all right, let's do this together. And so so much of it was just figuring it out as we went along. But it was. I know that I was still able to bring some sort of experience that was different from the skill set that John had. And mm -hmm. so together, I think we did something interesting at a time, you know, it was, it yeah. was great. And it kind of paved the way for my life today, which is like basically working in Italy, um, which there are pluses and minuses of, but you know, this idea that, cause it was also Narciso Rodriguez at the time was doing Lueve. So, and Michael Kors was doing Celine. So right. there were Americans who were, who were consulting with brands at the time. And it's a template that started sort of then that it continues to this day. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Well, maybe one last stop before in a way, current events, your, your stint at JC Penney, um, your, your brief stint at JC Penney and, you know, Ron Johnson for, for all of his prior accolades, you know, is widely regarded as having, having failed in his position there. But, I wonder now, with hindsight, 
and, and knowing what we know about where retail is, do you think there was any wisdom in what Rom was trying to do with JCPenney? 100%. It was the most amazing 49 weeks of my life. <laughs> I was there for 50, <laughs> and 49 of them. Did that gain you your bonus or not? You have to be um, there 52? <laughs> <laughs> we don't I, need to I, talk I, your no, separate no, no, package. No, but I'm going, I'm going to say the most positive <laughs> things. I It was the most amazing, really one of the most amazing work experiences I've had in my career to date. And for 49 of those weeks, it was under the leadership of Ron, who I still to this day believe did a phenomenal job. Um, and I fundamentally believe that, that everything Ron wanted to do was correct. The only problem was the order in which it happened. Mm-hmm. Um, I do believe that could have been a template for something to change and really help change retail in a way that needs to happen. Unfortunately, the, the, the market forces, the internal forces, there were just many things that just didn't conspire to make that thing a success. But I have only the most, you know, and there are so many good people. And what's sad about these kinds of situations is you understand a lot of people gave Ron trouble about like not respecting, but I think at the end of the day, that's actually what we were trying to do is save these people's lives, like yeah. save their, and although it didn't appear that way and there was a lot of resistance, and understandably so, because I think, you know, one thing about fashion, we for a, a business that's predicated upon change, we're the least, we're the most resistant to it. Mm-hmm. Um, but unfortunately, it didn't work. It was a it, we tried and failed. He tried and failed, and and I do think though that the only savior for places like that today is radical change. Yeah. So. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, they're they're very real estate heavy, obviously, and that's not a good place to be in this economy. They've got they've got space which is not turning over product on a per square foot basis at all. Um, and, you know, it, it, it may very well be too late. I mean, we're, we're two blocks away from what was Lord & Taylor's flagship, which was a gorgeous, gorgeous retail presence on Fifth Avenue. And it's, it's WeWork space now, or it's going to become WeWork space as they rip stuff out of there. Um, but through it all, Nick Wooster, the man, um, the machine in some ways, in terms of just being active and out there, during fashion weeks, during fashion events, you had a look, which uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you to indulge us. You know, did how much of that did you cultivate yourself? How much did you feel was you supporting designers that you liked and appreciated? How much of it was foisted upon you? Take us through, you know, the uh, the the arc. So the the, the and again, I'm okay. So I. How, how you know me, how people know me because of uh, street style blogs and everything that started in 2010 was because of the dress code of Nemo Marcus. The dress code was I had to wear a jacket and a tie. And so I just worked within that parameter and that's what gave me the sort of the runway to be able to create the, you know, the, the images that I, I mean, I didn't create the images, but to be the content for those images I just worked within the restricted area. You know, it's like, all right, and that's what I believe menswear is about. It's like a box, and it's like those designers, Tom Brown, Rick Owens, that can, Ray Kawakubo, that can go right to the edge are the ones that are meaningful. The minute you go outside the box, it's no longer meaningful. So I'm, yeah, as much as I chafed against having a dress code and hated every minute of it, it was because of that dress code that it sort of 
helped me create something of not unwitting. I mean, it wasn't my of my doing and my choosing. It's like, all right, if I have to wear a check and tie, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Um, so, and, and, and this was, you know, for our listeners who may not recall 2010 or 2006 or 1996. I mean, this is all really pre-social media. I mean, I think a lot of your images came to the fore on social media platforms, which are no longer really with us or, right. or current. Um, but maybe using that to talk a little bit about the laws of style, for which you, you very graciously wrote the foreword. Um, thanks again for that. <laughs> uh, you know, lawyers and other white-collar professionals, uh, professionals are, are very much constrained by that dress code, if you will, um, or expectation. But by the, by, by the same token, in terms of, you know, there, there's probably a change at most of the retailers towards a more business casual look. Most law firms have now gone business casual all week. And it has many men in a state of confusion because while, unlike you, they weren't going to take a lot of risks with the suit, they knew how to wear a navy suit with a white or blue shirt and a striped rep tie and look very passable, acceptable, like a lawyer, like a banker, like an accountant. And now they're kind of faced with the prospect of business casual, whatever the fuck that means. It's the worst possible thing that happened to men. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I, you know, I call it business casualty. Like it's, you know, it's terrible. I mean, and again, it's probably for exactly the my same experience. Men hated being told what to wear. They hated being told what to do. They hated knowing that they had to wear this uniform. And yet, that truly was the most liberating thing in the world because it freed them up from having to ever figure out what the fuck to do. Mm -hmm. And so, I do, I mean, I've always said there are a few easy fixes to how you can, let's say, navigate the terrain. But really, at the end of the day, that's what everybody should wear is a is a well-cut navy suit a well-cut gray suit a white or a blue shirt solid only maybe stripes if you're feeling really frisky <laughs> a solid <laughs> tie a stripe rep tie basic you know like you don't because you because most people shouldn't do what i do they shouldn't do what you do they shouldn't prioritize clothes there are many 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 more important things to worry about but Everybody, but that doesn't mean give you the license to not look good. You can still look great. Yeah. Starting by going to the gym, watching what you eat, but also dress in one color. If you just wear navy blue head to toe, you will always look put together. You know, it could be a navy blue sweater from Uniqlo. It could be a navy blue cashmere sweater from Brunello Cuccinelli. You know, you could spend $40 or you could spend $4,000 on the exact same item. That's not the point. So don't go for this. Don't go for this. No <laughs> one should look like this. By the way, listeners and viewers on YouTube, we did not – I know I know, my tie now ceases to pop against that sweater. But um, there was no coordination or, uh, you know, sort of pre, pre-agreed pink day <laughs> going on today. Well, well, I want to I wanna, I wanna slowly – tease out some of these pieces because there's a lot there are a lot of gems here I think for our listeners particularly men who um, want to be fashionable let's you know there there are there are billions of types of men but I think you know the two poles within a white collar situation are those that are kind of fashion luddites and they just want to get through the day 
and be comfortable, but not be called out, you know, on, on being schlubby. And then there's kind of the more peacock guy, the guy who does want to be fashionable, the guy that does follow you on Instagram and wants to integrate those pieces. So let's start with that guy because he's more interesting <laughs> to me than the Luddite. Um, what are some cautionary tales? You know, let me, let me ask this. How do you like, and having been your lawyer for many years, you know, but I'll ask, how do you like your lawyer to look? <laughs> <laughs> I like when my, you visit him in the office. I like my lawyers to look <laughs> expensive. <laughs> okay, that's that's. Um, no, I mean I think you have to look. The, I I okay, I'm super shallow, but I also am not. If you work in fashion, you should look like you work in fashion. You need to look the part in some way. Mm -hmm. So, and I mean that. I really mean that. Yeah. Okay, so you do like you because you do what you just also asked me about like you wear the people that you represent. And I think that that's super, I think it's my job too. It's like, I, I need to support brands, designers, stores that I wanna see be successful. And I, I think we all need to be successful because we really need each other. It's like an ecosystem that's interdependent on, you know, everyone surviving. It also makes your word your word when you are actually representing someone, believe in them, and you're, at least in my case, maybe stretching yourself by wearing something into the office that might not be Brooks Brothers. You know, isn't Brooks Brothers. It's, right. it's, it's, it's Willie Chavarria or it's Philip Lim or it's, you know, it's something that maybe is, is a little outside of, of, a, of a more traditional norm. Um, you know, within, within the safety zone of, of that blue suit, blue pinstripe suit, gray flannel, what are some of the areas that are that are more interesting gentlemen can do where he's not going to go over the line of looking too much like a glamazon but he can express himself and feel like he's taking a little bit of license i mean that's what accessories are for so and again the world is populated by people who believe more firmly or fully in in that and sometimes that scares me but but again that's kind of what it's for it's an accessory you know, I believe that the that the tailor that the suit or the clothing is the foil for your face, your eyes, your hair, the fit, um, because that's really the most important thing. You know, I've said this a million times, but it's like it doesn't matter what the price of the item you have on your body is, if it doesn't fit properly, it's going to look cheap. This so. is a sample sale cautionary tale <laughs> to, to all listeners if it doesn't fit and the tailor, particularly, you know, in sample bins, it's always the printed stuff, right? It's always the plaid. So if that doesn't fit, you're not going to take that to any tailor I've been to and have them modify it two sizes and have anything line up the way it should. Well, I mean, but forget about, you know, it, usually it's the other way around. It's like just because you can button it doesn't mean it fits. <laughs> Got to be able to hail a cabinet. That's well, usually my test without ripping it. Yeah. I mean, there's, but, you know, so, uh, you know, and probably the single most important accessory that a man can own is a full-length mirror. <laughs> Good one. <laughs> you know, it's like, because you really, and really a three-way mirror, because you really need to see from behind, too. True. Um, but I, I believe that if you sort of keep it really simple, like by color, by style, by texture, because I'm not really big on texture, I'm not really big on all these things. If you keep it really simple, then if you, you know, like splash out on a pair of shoes, splash out on a watch, splash out on a tie, but you don't need to have jewelry and a tie and a pocket square and a chain and glasses and tint and 
hair color and you know it's like wow like pick one <laughs> maybe two yeah no it's um look it's easy to poke fun at that guy who's out there looking like you know trends exploded on him right um but in a sense and i feel like i'm maybe even quoting will welsh here you know we all need that guy to pull fashion forward a little bit he's kind of the first guy over the wall he gets bloodied <laughs> right or through oh the wall or through the door or whatever whatever the analogy is to the white collar professionals out there you shouldn't be that guy you really shouldn't i mean and probably if you're successful you already know this because that's going to be that will have been part of the alchemy of your success it's like you know i i think that the other single biggest thing is you know don't try this at home it's like okay you may be super interested in style or fashion or trends great do it on your time off but you like the w work isn't the place to necessarily um you know exhibit that behavior or that interest i mean that doesn't mean though that you can't enjoy or feel good about what you're wearing that's where it goes back to fit you know fabric but you know there's something that's very satisfying about putting on a garment again it doesn't matter what the price is that when you put it on you feel a little bit taller a little bit slimmer a little bit better and that's really to me what clothing should do yeah. or like a beautiful alligator belt from ralph lauren or brooks brothers with like a nickel buckle like a sterling buckle like if, if you have a beautiful object on your feet or around your waist or um, a beautiful watch like those that's enough you've got other things to worry about yeah well <clears throat> and that really does get into beyond looking objectively professional that i think to to that peacock as well as to the luddite you know if you feel that you look good there is a feedback loop of confidence that you get because you've walked out the door and you feel like you look good and so maybe it's that your chin is cocked a little bit higher your shoulders are back but you're actually looking better and then you get some feedback whether it's on a subway platform or in the elevator on the way up to your office or you know, somebody passing you in the hallway, hey, nice tie, or not, and, and it just continues to cycle that. And, you know, uh, there's data, which the book elucidates, that, you know, you actually perform better at work when you are dressed in more formal, tailored clothing. But let's focus on Nick Wooster. Um, you know, I, I have some, I've never heard of you referred to these ways, but I, but I will list <laughs> them out, all right? The, the alpha male of American street style. That's a good one. The Woost God, all right? I mean, you're, you're an internet superhero, right? And you have bridged this period of time between pre-internet um, and social media platform being absolutely a bugle call to, to big bucks for, you know, for influencers. Um, how deliberate was that? And why do you, well, let me, let me stop there and then I'll ask the next question. I mean, I... I had no, I, I used to think people were making fun of me when like these memes came out and it was like the first meme I ever saw was thinking about Wooska. I'm like, oh my god, are they making fun of me? Like some faggot. Like I really <laughs> thought that it was like coded language of making fun of me um, because that's how insecure I am. I mean, I was like super, uh, you know. And so again, I think that if I had wanted or tried or if there had been any plan, for sure it would have failed miserably. Mm -hmm. I just I. Again, I'm super grateful to 
people like Lawrence Schlossman or Tommy Tan or Scott Schumann that, you know, have they sort of gave me let's say license or they they just provide they they just signal, they called me out in some in some very easy way and mm -hmm. I was like oh wow okay cool I mean I've always been interested in clothes and so I just and I've always been okay for someone who's as insecure as I am and it's, it's really true or someone who's like as shy as I am <laughs> this is like one of the paradoxes of like I I. <laughs> would do the opposite. Like if I really wanted to blend into the woodwork, but I would wear Lily Pulitzer pants. Like, but that's kind of how I am. And, you know, because I'm completely fearless, I'm completely fearful of everything in life, except getting dressed. I mean, that's just right. the one thing that like, doesn't. That's your superpower. So, you know, yeah. so, okay, so cool. So I'm super grateful for the. Well, that authenticity obviously resonated, and I, I would love to talk about some of the great street style photographers, or I won't even give the, you know, some of the great photographers who, who have shot you and about sort of how that has evolved. But back to your, your followers or those that, why do you think that your following is so diverse and global? What do you think the message is that you put out there that resonates not just here in the U.S. and not just in Europe and not just in India, but globally. Well, I used to say the only reason that I even got an audience was because of tattoos. It was because, you know, so here was this 50-year-old guy who broke the dress code and got written up at New Marcus for not wearing a jacket one day to the shows in Paris because it was so boiling hot. And I showed up in a Fred Perry short sleeve shirt, and I remember <laughs> – the, you the, the internet sleeves. did sort of explode that like holy fuck he's got tattoos and right. so i'm convinced that that's why young people took notice because like who's this old queen like this old guy <laughs> um the you know the I, I and i do think that there's something about authenticity just meaning that like this is just inherently i've always been this way people that know me from college and high school will tell you the same i was always different in the way that i approached getting dressed or what i was willing to to wear um and i you know and i still to this day can't quite figure out why because i used to say <laughs> in those days that if you were young if you were black if you were asian or you were straight you were interested in me but i couldn't get arrested with gay white guys and in a way that's kind of true because um you know on instagram they have the audience um you know statistics and like the, the single biggest city for me of followers is Taipei. Wow. Which is crazy. And the next and that's one that's a massive city, right? I and mean, the next one is Seoul. Okay. And then and then there's another Asian city that I don't even know how to pronounce. And you know, and then Tokyo and then New York. So it's like, how did that happen? But I think it's because I'm just regular. You know, I'm not tall, I'm not a model, I'm not, you know, I'm I'm a little bit thick like I'm not you know I'm not so in some way I'm relatable mm -hmm. to a, a bigger variety of people well on that influence that you have and to date just on Instagram alone I think you're close to a million followers um, what do you think about the the rise of the influencer as market mover um, and, and maybe in particular, we'll talk the mega ones. You know, Kim Kardashian last year, I think, was recognized by the CFDA as Influencer of the Year, a new award. We'll see if it comes out again this year. But, um, you know, she is a mega brand mover. And her, 
her posts are are gold and you know she has a whole infrastructure a whole business built around that uh, i know having done deals opposite her right. um what what sort of the rates are for for those um and obviously you know there's nothing askance here this is all above board in that anytime an influencer posts um in you know in favor of an item and if it's supported by a financial gain or even just a donation of clothes or free clothes you have to disclose that and she she always does but the industry as a whole what do you think it's done to fashion good or bad well i you know i know that there are a lot of people who have very uh, definitive ideas about this and usually especially from people from traditional media or traditional outlets are not so positive and i to even sort of bristle or bridle at the you know the, the the idea of like ugh, and of course sometimes I wish that I was doing a much better job of influencing <laughs> than I currently do, which is <laughs> well, like yeah, nothing. Well, yeah, you you don't really have that massive in- infrastructure. I will tell. No, you know, I, d- people, I yeah, you, don't at all. Yeah, it's and, you. You know, yeah. it's me. So. And the, but you know what ends up happening is is when I do it I lose followers so I just think it's you know it's kind of not authentic to my audience they're not looking to me for that I mean mm-hmm. at some point I'm gonna probably need to start doing it more because it's like you know I'm, as I should be approaching a retirement age but but the reality is that I do I do do it when it seems right and authentic and real and something that I can fully get behind so in that way. Um, I'm I'm for it because again it seems logical and natural to me. Um, listen, it, it has upended traditional media, and I'm sure the people at Condé Nast, I'm sure the people at Hearst, I'm sure the people at you know traditional publications really fucking hate it. And you know I understand, and mm-hmm. b- because I <laughs> remember editors being the ones that were telling people like me as a buyer, you know, helping me like that. Their job was to inform and educate, and I was my job was like to listen and pay attention. And so, it was a very again we were interdependent, like we worked together on these things. And so, I still believe in those kinds of traditional structures, but I understand too that. So in 2011 or 2012, I think you may have even been at this. There was some guy who invited us to some dinner on Greenwich Avenue, and there were a lot of people like. Hashtag menswear hashtag, hashtag yep. menswear people. And and I sat next to this investment banker, and it was tr- – and I, and I really said – I remember vividly this conversation. It was like in the spring. And I remember it was a beautiful afternoon and evening and, and something, and I remember – because I really – so he said, like, what are you doing? And I sort of explained a little bit because I was working with Gilt and Park and Bond at the time. I had been more or less freshly fired from Neiman Marcus. And – something and it was all you know I mean in those days I don't even think I had a hundred thousand followers on Instagram yet but it was around I was getting close to that and it was more the idea of like oh my god can you believe that and and he's like well and I said I have no idea how this happened like I don't know why this would be happening and he said I do okay (laughs) what and he said institutions are failing and people you know Washington Wall Street Again, this is 2011, 2012. I mean, I don't precisely remember what was happening yet. We certainly didn't have who we have in the White House. But but I remember, and, and, and in a way, that's kind of true. Like, I kind yeah. of understood that. It was mm-hmm. really, you know, kind of Profound. eye-opening for me yeah. to sort of like, oh, right, I get it. And so, because you're right, because 
you know, so if, if, if magazines or institutions used to be the ones to tell us, it really was because of Kim Kardashian and, and everything else that it really were, people were looking to individuals to also do that. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's always been celebrity endorsements. I mean, that didn't start with Kim Kardashian, but, right. but as a business model and really the ability and, you know, and I remember like bloggers being such a problem for all the editors. And again, rightly, I under, understandably so because they were taking up valuable real estate that could have gone to the second tier or the third tier. And so now it's like a system where everybody's sort of like, let's say, has integrated, but I can understand that there will probably be further changes to that ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think I know the answer to this without asking, but do you have any, any style icons that have either informed the way that you present yourself or they haven't, but you, they're still style icons for you. You know, not really. I mean, the, I think one time I said, you know, my style icon was a mirror. I mean, meaning like, because I was just willing to try it on myself, right. like not because I needed yeah. some, but that's not true. I mean, I am always clocking people. I'm always clocking people. I mean, I I'd like to say I had original idea. I don't think I've ever had an original idea. I well, just for the international man of the year in India, I'll put that in parents. Um, what cities do you really clock people? What cities are the most stylish and fashionable for you? Or or maybe a better question for you, most interesting from a fashion perspective? I mean, Tokyo, Seoul, London, Paris. Florence, Milan. I mean, these to me, New York, I mean, and frankly, Los Angeles. I mean, anywhere can be um, an inspiring place. I mean, the Minneapolis airport, maybe not as much, but you still get, (laughs) no offense, Minneapolis. I was just there, and actually, I had the most amazing flight that I took from Delta, you know, to Tokyo on this lovely, you know, plane, the A350 or whatever it was. But, you know, but the thing is that, I mean, cities are inspiring. Mm-hmm. Wherever there are people, it's inspiring. Yeah. Sometimes it's a good example of what you don't want to do, but sometimes mm-hmm. even in, you know, you can like, wow. Do you get, uh, do you follow Mr. Mort? Of uh, course. Yeah. Um, does that ever inspire you? Or, you know, I mean, I find, I find those images captivating. It um, does. Yeah. And, you know, so, and again, this is a visual thing. I'm, it's I, Mordecai Rubenstein for folks that don't know, but uh, his his handle on at least Instagram is Mr. Mort. And he, yeah, and what I what I love about him is how he really, you know, elevates <laughs> that, like the the mundane, the ordinary, the just the normal. But it, it's like, oh wow, you know. And I, I think anyway, I I love Mordecai and I love what he, his ability to sort of see things and yeah and. You know, so, I mean, a corollary to that is that this Christmas, my my brother lives in Tampa, and I have two nephews that are 14 and, or 13 and 15, and they were like, Uncle Nicky, did you bring the Balenciaga triple S's? And I was like, yeah, so I brought a, a pair, and um, because I knew they would be, find them amusing, and so my, my, my dad, who's 83, was sitting there, you know, like, I'm sure looking at the, thinking like, how the hell are these these are the ugliest fucking shoes I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, give me those. And he put them on. And then I, I posted a picture of my dad wearing, you know, the dad sneaker. Right. But I think that that's kind of hilarious. Like, 
three generations, three right. completely disparate places, the suburbs of Tampa, Salina, Kansas, you know, New York Nick, <laughs> kind of coming together <laughs> over a pair of sneakers that, right. you know, that full circle or full, full, full triangle. Well, you know, the dad sneakers certainly having a moment. Um, what beyond moments? I mean, what what brands resonate for you? Because I know you, you are you're, you're a very loyal guy. Uh, to your friends, but I think you're pretty agnostic as to brand. Um, but what brands are interesting to you from a design perspective today? Um, and I'll you know, I've always been interested in the things that are not obvious. Now, I mean, like we were talking about the triple S's. I own three or, three or four pair. I still wear, I, I do wear obvious things. I mean, I have another friend, George Cortina, who's a very stylish guy, who would, you know, say that I'm very obvious about how I get dressed and I and I probably am but I really in terms of clothing like things that are that are maybe people don't know about or not so but by that I mean like power brands Prada Gucci mm -hmm. you know that kind of thing I probably although I really am loving Prada these days um, I, I like to wear things like color or Sakai or Paul Harndon or Elena Dawson or and you know, m m many people are not going to know who that is, and that's cool. Like I, it's not, and it's not because I think, but it's just because it's something different. And mm -hmm. I, you know, can let's say fully appreciate like the craft that it takes to make these clothes, and then the fact that they're not going to be everywhere. Yeah, it's something that I, you know, because my my job is to go shopping, <laughs> or I do, I, I I call that my job, but I do. I spend a lot of time in stores, so when I discover these things, it's always let's say like the reward like oh yeah. cool so yeah. here's something that i well and listen that is your job my friend in many ways and it's wonderful to develop a career around a passion because i know you're passionate about it um let's focus on what you got on today um which is hard it's hard not to focus on it i feel <laughs> like my eyes are going to be going to be shooting laser beams out later this afternoon but um you know just in terms of the four w's you know who are you wearing? What is it for our, you know, pure iTunes downloaders? What season, if you know, and and then wrap it all up with a why? Why this ensemble today? Okay, so it's <laughs> May. It's May. And it's, it's mid May. Fucking freezing outside. Yeah, I know. So I am wearing <laughs> clothes from next fall and winters. Uh, Nick Wooster, Paul and Chart collaboration. So the sweater is like their iconic. Um, sailor sweater that they mm -hmm. usually do in navy blue wool. Right. I love the um, side the the side shoulder buttons. That is executed in like fluorescent pink, and then it's a cargo pant that I developed that you know we did shorts in the season before from spring. We're going to continue them next spring, but um, a gray flannel cargo pant. And again, I would just argue that I'm just wearing a sweater and a pair of pants. Mm -hmm. But I also understand that they're maybe not normal. Yep. And then I'm wearing a dad sneaker, a Nike um, Techno those 2. You look as stable as a tree in those things, man. <laughs> I love a dad sneaker. Good for the joints. Good for the joints. We'll get into our, our relative ages uh, before we before we close. But, yeah, those are gorgeous. No socks. You're going sockless well, even a, on a cold day. There's a foot panty You got in the there. foot panty? Okay. I'm against the foot panty, but, you know, it's so personal. So you wear no sock at all I then? wear no socks when I wear no socks. You know, the problem is I used to do that, but yeah. it's like I don't like smelly shoes. <laughs> well, you get you got it. Once you get out of them, you got to treat them. 
you right. know, you got to put something in there to, to, to deal with that. And they do make that kind of stuff. How about accessories? What watch do you have on? Um, I'm wearing a Bamford Rolex that's, I don't know, four or five years old. And um, I wear these four rings that I... That Barely I, noticeable. Hold, hold your hands up like this so we can... There we go. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, one's a wedding ring from Tiffany. The other was a wedding ring from Tiffany, but I lost it. And then I was in Japan and found this super thin one. And then I had some store on Lafayette Street, kind of across the street from Supreme, who made this one and this one. Okay. So yeah. four gold bands. Four gold bands. Anything else? I think that's it. All right, that's it. Sunspell underwear. Sunspell underwear. Well, that's good to mention. And, 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 you know, I think I know the answer to why, you know, because probably why not. But, you know, any, any, you're coming oh. in today, you're, you're traveling, any other whys to this ensemble today? I mean, just because I, I, so I don't wear jeans. Like, I never wear jeans. Denim's not that comfortable. Right, right. That's what yeah. I've always said. It's not comfortable. Particularly some of the some of the washes we've seen come out over the you know the last decade that are like wearing cardboard pants. Yeah, and just like a a mom wash, dad wash, light blue jean never seemed kind of dressed dressed in any way, shape, or form. Dress up, dress down. It just never seemed dressed to me. It was seemed like kind of like it's interesting coming out of Kansas and Ralph Lauren that that you would be. I'm not going to say anti-denim because I know you're not, yeah, but mean, it's I, just not a preference. I'm the same way. And, you know, born and raised Southern Californian, you know, sort of the epicenter of denim. Right. Um, I, you know, I, I don't feel – denim is very functional. I'm not out driving railroad ties, right? I'm not out bucking Broncos. <laughs> like, I'm doing legal work. So denim, while it's very prevalent, it's there's a whole subchapter in the book, which you may remember, which is kind of – the anti-denim statement, which I go out there with, but then since I know half of you are going to do it anyway, here's how you do it. Right. And, yeah, and denim is a – listen, so I have a pair of ready-made jeans from Tokyo that are essentially like six pair of Levi's that have been disassembled and reassembled in a, you know, in a way, and they did it sort of before Bet Mom, but it's like that, it's like that idea. They, they put trouser pockets in them. They, lo- they lengthen the crotch, but it still has the Levi's pockets in the back. And it is a mom wash jean, but it's like, but it's artisanal. Yeah. So, and yeah. I do wear those. Those are like the jeans that I keep in sort of my rotation that when I do, which is rare, but, and I also, I think that if you're wearing jeans, you need to wear shoes. I don't wear jeans with sneakers. Mm-hmm. It's like jeans with a pair of wingtips or, you know, churches or something like that. Like I, I like a heavy English mm-hmm. shoe with a pair of jeans and then you can wear something, you know, you can wear a hoodie on top or you could wear a, a cashmere sweater on top or a blazer or a you jacket. Know, I mean, it, 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 it's not so much the look that offends me on jeans. It's, it's honestly how they wear. They just seem silly in the office candidly where, you know, you're not doing those two very active occupations I listed or any others. Um, maybe changing the the, the photocopier, uh, you know, <laughs> but, yeah. um, so, but anyway, so, but I, I believe in things like chinos or, or trousers because I feel like, and, and, you know, Eugene Tong is a great fan of, um, he's a very stylish guy. Yes. He um, he's a style icon. You know, I, I always sort of, and he, maybe he is horrified if I would say this, but like what I always kind of understood about how Eugene got dressed was that he, he could wear a hoodie, he could wear sneakers but he always had tailored wool trousers. And to me, that kind of sums it up. It's like, 
I like that tension, the idea of like two things that you wouldn't think to go together. Yeah. And that's how today, because I wear a lot of hoodies now, which is also like, okay, whatever. I'm a victim of trends. And they're also, but they're also super cozy. So it's like, there's a reason why people wear them, but I need to wear them with a pair of trousers, not jeans or not another pair of sweatpants. Yeah. I would never do that. You know, even if I go to the gym, I used to be a big believer in a, in a you know, a Tom Brown sweatpant with a, with a jacket, with a blazer, mm-hmm. you know, like a tweed blazer. I love that look. Yeah. Um, or I love a jacket with a hoodie. Um, yeah. Track suits, if you're on the team, okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but so you talked about really what sounded like uh, upcycled jeans, very bespoke ones. Um, we both know how dirty literally the fashion industry is that, uh, you know, it's, it's in a sense kind of facing somewhat of a, a Gen Z millennial uh, reaction in that regard. And um, figures I've been presented with, which I have on relatively good authority, you know, that, that second, the secondhand market for goods will be over 50 billion uh, in four years. What do you think about it? As a man whose closet must be as big as Jerry Seinfeld's uh, Porsche garage, what do, you, what do you think about that? Um, I mean, look, you're an exception in terms of, you know, I, I feel like the clothes that you have you keep and you wear and you, and you love. But do you think that there is a viable secondhand market and that consumers will respond to it in that way as opposed to fast fashion? So I have a few. I'm a huge, I'm one of the biggest suppliers to Tokyo 7. So again, part of my yeah. job. Um, I believe in cycling, cycling through. I am a big believer, So because this is what happened to me. I, you know, I give things away and I sell things off that I need to you know, make room for new. Of course, this is part of the problem of my, my father, my accountant, my you know uncle all advising me to not you know save some money which i really still don't do very well but um but i also am a big believer in i would much rather see young kids and i know some of the young guys around that tell me or i i see them or they say oh this was yours wasn't it i'm like yeah and i you know but it's like a way of like of you know handing it down of like keeping it because i would much rather see people buy nice clothes at a good price than going to a fast fashion place which you know again i'm it's great that things exist so that you can look great with not for not a lot of money Mm -hmm. i'm not uh, totally opposed to these things i'm opposed to the trendy ones the ones that like it's just so obvious that you are doing a trend but like you know uniqlo actually makes some of the best cashmere and some of the best merino sweaters in the world i'm a huge consumer of those things like i buy them for myself i tend to get rid of them at the end of the season but my housekeeper young kids you know get cashmere sweaters or merino sweaters because of that and that's a nice thing to give to someone else mm-hmm. um but i i believe that it's it's important to keep things going um and especially nice clothes because they're you know they're beautiful objects and yeah. they should be they should be in the hands of those that appreciate them yeah no that's 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 well put um Unisex offerings, you know, there there has been a growing, um, I won't say movement, but there are more brands seemingly than ever offering unisex, not not branded men's or women's, not not placed in, if they have their own retail 
you know, on the men's side or the women's side. Uh, do you think that's a wave of the future? Is that just a trend which will, which will you know, see its apex and, and, and go away? I mean, I, I don't, I'm not, I'm not a very good predictor. Otherwise, I'd be playing the futures market. But I, I think that it's probably something that in some way is here to stay because so many things were already that way anyway. Like, mm -hmm. you know, girlfriends always wore their boyfriend's sweater or shirt or hoodie or jeans um, and vice versa. I mean, I also think because of people like Brian Boy that are, you know, totally, he's a dude and he totally wears women's clothes and wears makeup, but he's, you know, and so I do think that that's also something that's here to stay. Like, good, you know, I, mm -hmm. why not? Like, if you want to paint your fingernails, if you want to do, but you're a dude, like, cool. Like, so I think that the, rules that we that I certainly grew up with are breaking I've broken down and so um, why not you know and also is like so as the population gets bigger you know you can go into a women's department and so a guy could probably find clothes if he if he's comfortable and wants to do that he can find things there because also the 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 customer base has shifted to so many more Asian people are everywhere meaning they're everywhere in Europe everywhere in the US so consequently there's a lot of smaller sizes so a lot of women can you know also benefit from that idea mm -hmm. so I, I, I good yeah. knock yourself out like if you want to carry a handbag I love it if you want to wear a skirt Comme des Garçons the black range and maybe some others as well but they it's unisex and Barney's carry it 4510 carry it many I'm sure some other stores do as well and, you know, the skirts, the sort of skirt pants, the jackets, they're, you know, one size from double XS to double XL. And if you can fit in it, you want to wear it, knock yourself out. Yeah. Yeah. I had Yoli Tang on several months ago and, you know, she's from Malaysia and everybody wears a sarong. Right. right? So, you know, there, there definitely are, are huge regions of the planet where it's already unisex and it's been unisex for centuries. What, what about the label of streetwear that seems to perhaps be a little over applied? And, you know, I think of our friends Dowie and, and Maxwell, right? Public school. It, 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 it's got a very urban sound to it, literally public school, right? Um, Yet their background and a lot of their early designs were, were tailored clothing. Um, yet I think they often were labeled as, oh, it's streetwear. Right. But what, what do you think about that label? And, you know, is it, is it a shorthand for something or is it more insidious? Well, I think it's all of the above. I think it, it, it's super insidious, especially to the people who are labeled that because they kind of, let's say, can't get out from under it or you know uh, seemingly their business and that's one but that's also one of the bigger problems of the business it's been going on for 30 years you know when and as a retail and so I'm wearing my retail hat now but it, when I was a buyer you know you have very finite resources meaning like your budget for a certain thing is going to be x and when designer you know a decides that he wants to do x y and z but you've only made the budget for x you know, you, it's not that you don't want to be supportive or that you don't also want to believe in what they're doing. Sometimes they shouldn't be doing it. And then sometimes you do, and you find a way to make it a little bit bigger, but you can't necessarily fully go there. Mm -hmm. um, 
but this has been going on for as long as there are budgets. I mean, it's like yeah. there's no, you yeah. know. But I, 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 I do think that streetwear is a shorthand for also what's successful in the world today. And I really mean that about menswear, like sneakers, hoodies, um, you know, sweatpants. Those were all, let's say, and T-shirts. I mean, T-shirts are a huge business right now. So those four things are what are really driving menswear in the way that, you know, tailored clothing, <laughs> dress pants, shoes, and dress shirts and ties used to drive the menswear business. Yeah. It's just shifted. Yeah. So, okay, those are like, let's say, the, the, you know, the, the building blocks of, of street style. And then, so it's a, so it's kind of both. I mean, I think that you know, designers get pigeonholed, John Elliott or Public School or or whoever, and and it's hard for them to get out from under that label. It can also be a a, a thing about like if you're black, if you're you know from from the city that like an urban setting, it can be. But I mean, who, at this point, I just look at you. I just think you have to look at things for what they are. It's like yeah. if it's. If it's a sweatshirt, it's a sweatshirt. I don't care whether it's from, you know, Balenciaga or whether it's from, you know, Aaron Preston. It's like a sweatshirt's a sweatshirt. It's what you do with it that I think is the interpretation. And it's a hugely successful segment, as as you mentioned. I mean, I'm sure Paul Stewart and Joseph Abood would love to have a, a, a street style moniker on at least, you know, a subset of their uh, their offerings. Well, the other street. Um, related uh, topic street style photography that i wanted to 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 come back around um to you i, I mean i i've been with you on the street during fashion weeks and it's uh it, it's it's a gaggle of of clicks and you know you are i don't want to say hounded because i don't want to disrespect any of those photographers but it's um it's it's wildly proliferated and and you have everything from some of the the notable luminaries of the genre that you mentioned to you know some kid who's who's coming down from rochester with uh with a nikon and just wandering around and and pushing people over and taking pictures what's what's your sense of what it was is it still the same has it gotten a little out of hand has it dissipated you know um just your thoughts well, I mean, I, I think uh, several things. I mean, I think that the it it still exists, obviously. Um, in a way, it's maybe the cast of characters is changing. Some of the photographers who, let's say, you know, were the pillars of that five or ten years ago are have either moved on or have been moved out because of like they became expensive or they became. And also, uh, for me, I don't. They don't take as many pictures of me as they used to because there's also fresher, newer faces, and so. It's a it's a it's a constantly evolving cycle, but don't get me wrong. They they still many people still take my picture, and I'm always still continue to be as flattered as I as I once was. And in a certain way, I'm like, okay, thank God, because it's just like let someone else do it, you know, like mm -hmm. it's someone else's turn. Um, but it has changed because also the outlets have changed. I mean, I think that you know, the I mean. It maybe let's say it started with blogs and and their own blogs and that was their content then they partner with certain magazines now they're less magazines but then you have people like the new york times and wall street journal and then other platforms that also so it's like everything's kind of shifting mm -hmm. um but it's still there i don't go to as many fashion shows as i used to either because of just the nature of my work it's like I've missed so many fashion weeks lately because I've had to do other things. You have. I that used to be the time I could count on seeing you, and but 
you've been busy, and I'd love to let's uh, let's let's tackle that as really my last question to you, but an extremely open-ended one. You know, we we worked together ages ago on the Lardini collaboration. You you've done a number of collaborations. Talk about Nick Wooster, the brand, the man now, and and what you're working on and what's to come. <laughs> so I, um, you know, I, I so. Lardini transitioned to Paul and Shark because the commercial director of Lardini is now the general manager of Paul and Shark. Okay. So, you know, this is again is advice for kids. It's like you know, you you never know where your next opportunity is going to come, but it's like you need to develop those relationships that you have now, even if you're in a job that you hate, your boss is miserable, or people are miserable. But you never know. So if you are, if you if you do a good job in some way. People remember, and the, and you know, and it's like no secret. People hire people they've worked with. That's yeah. just how it works. It's a lot easier. The devil you know is a lot better, a lot better than the devil you don't know. So, well, and doing good work, obviously, being a great calling card, that helps too. Yes. <laughs> but you know, so anyway, so I um, have been working with Paul and Shark for the past two years. I continue to work with them. I mean, the difference is I'm spending more time, and I'm I'm really helping them in sort of all areas they also collaborate or they're collaborating with some other people right now too so it but i'm doing a collaboration with my name on it i'm also designing the women's and so that's taken up a, a bigger part of my time and that's actually been super interesting now i do not for one minute think that i'm a women's designer but the but what i am able to do is like a dj i'm a, able to sample the best of what we do in men's and then mm -hmm. help them reproportionate for women and yeah. working with a design director a woman who is also the perfect kind of muse for it because she's cute she's young she looks good in the clothes and she wants to wear it too so together we're because again I, I think this is like the secret to all creative endeavors you need a good partner and if you have a good partner whatever their abilities are she's a trained designer she's also um, cute and you know and 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 fun to be with so we can do that together and that's what's been for me a super interesting project that you know people will see in the next uh, two or three months um, I, I, I'm continuing to work with 4510 um, and then you know there are uh, might be a book soon um, that's probably as far as I can say right now. Okay, okay, excellent. Well, Nick, that's a wrap. Um, thank you so much for coming in and for your efforts, probably your fifth copy of The Laws of Style will be waiting for you, this time unsigned, you know. Um, but thanks again and um, have a safe trip. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Bye. Bye now. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website, at www.hballp.com. And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at, at Hand of the Law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.